All right, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Psalm 119. Once again, Psalm 119, verse 116. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they will be happy to get one into your hands. Psalm 119, verse 160. We looked at it last week. I'm going to briefly look at it again this morning. And this is part two of a sermon about why the Bible can be trusted as God's Word. Why the Bible can be trusted as God's Word, a topic that's absolutely critical and absolutely foundational to our faith. No doubt about it. Critical and foundational. Why you believe what you believe is the question of the day. It's really been the question of any day, but it's certainly the question of this day and this age with so much swirling about us. While there are several pillar passages on which I could base it, pillar passage in that if you take that particular passage in the Bible away, that particular verse, if you take it away, the doctrine that it supports would fall or be severely weakened. This is one of those pillar passages on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. While there are several of these that I could have used to base this message on, I've chosen Psalm 119 because it's all about the Word. It's all about the Word of God. Like in verse 160, where the psalmist says to God, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Just read that again. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That is the entirety of God's Written revelation to us is necessary, true, and trustworthy. Always has been and always will be. It endures forever. As we said last week, it's not just an empty claim. It's backed up by evidence, subjective and objective evidence. Subjective in how it affects our heart and soul, how it changes our lives an object of evidence that we can see and test, that anybody can see and test. We started last week with the fact that it's historically accurate, and it's true in what it recounts about people and places and events, all of them. Second, it's supported by archaeology, from the destruction of cities to the locations of synagogues and everything else in between. From the little to the big. Third, its prophecies have been fulfilled. Love this one. Personal favorite. Hundreds of prophecies have been fulfilled as men spoke from God who, hello, knows the end from the beginning. Prophecies have been fulfilled. Fourth, it's written by eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses with an abundance or who include an abundance of verifiable detail. Lending weight to their credibility and their truthfulness. Number five, we talked about last week, its message is consistent. Written over 1,600 years, the Bible was, by 40-plus people who agree on all, all of the ethical and spiritual and social aspects of life with none other than a common thread of supernatural purpose and involvement woven throughout. Its message is consistent. And then number six, its content is honest, neither sanitized nor embellished, just the straightforward presentation of the facts. Which brings us to part two and the seventh reason 
that the Bible can be trusted as God's word, and that is its text is reliable. Its text is reliable. A fact, like all the others, that has stood the test of time and the test of critics the world over. It has. Like, for instance, Muslims who say that the text of the New Testament is corrupted. Corrupted. The real text, they say, has no mention of Jesus dying on the cross. Maybe you've run into this before. In the real text, Muslims say, has no mention of Jesus dying on the cross, no forgiveness of sins because of it, and certainly no resurrection. It's all made up, they say, completely fabricated. And you would think that such a strong criticism was based on some evidence, like the existence of a manuscript here or there or, or something of that nature. But you'd be wrong, because there's not. Not one, not one manuscript or anything like it to back up such a charge. It's purely contrived to support their own belief. Another critic is Bart Ehrman. Maybe you've heard his name here and there. Bart Ehrman, who got a degree from Moody Bible Institute, then Wheaton College, and then went on to get an MDiv and a PhD from Princeton Smart guy, no doubt about that, all good. Except while at Princeton, he renounced his faith and became an agnostic atheist. Now, if that's a puzzle to you, it took me a bit to figure that one out, an agnostic atheist. It's someone who doesn't believe God exists and just in case he does, he doesn't think he can be known. An agnostic atheist. So that now, He's professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. You couldn't make these things up. Worse yet, he's written about 30 books that basically say the Bible is full of errors and can't be trusted. Thankfully, other biblical scholars, equally as learned, far more, people like Daniel Wallace have refuted his work, not only in whole, but in part and in the details, saying, quote, he overstates his case and that he's, quote, prone to profound confusion, botched readings, and scholarly fictions. And here's the thing. You don't have to be a scholar to come to the very same conclusions. You just have to know some facts about this book, four of them. Four reasons the biblical text as we have it today, four reasons the Bible that you hold in your hand is reliable. First, it's accurately quoted. It's accurately quoted. Time and again, Jesus and the apostolic writers accurately quoted the Old Testament in the New. Accurately quoted it, confirming the reliability of both. In fact, did you know that with the exception of Esther, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, with the exception of those three books, every other book of the Old Testament is either quoted or referenced in the New Testament? Love those connections. In, in the Gospels alone, Jesus referred to verses in 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Zechariah, and Malachi. 18 of them. 18 of the 39 Old Testament books Jesus himself either quoted or referenced and did so, here's the point, did so accurately. Accurately. Which is important. Because if the New Testament misquoted the old or significantly changed it, it would call one or the other into question. Which one would be right? And and how can the whole of it, as its writers say, how can the whole of it, the sum of it, be God's word if the meaning is different from one part to another? Fortunately, we don't have to answer those questions. We don't. Because the New Testament doesn't misquote the old. In fact, the accuracy of it indicates that the text is reliable. Second, it was carefully scrutinized. The biblical text is reliable because it was carefully scrutinized. And that could be the understatement of the day. The Old Testament carefully scrutinized by a robust scribal tradition where men just didn't, you know, study the the text on on the side as they were doing all the other things in their life as we normally do, but they gave their entire lives to it. 24-7, 365, as long as God gave them breath, they studied the text of the Old Testament and they copied the text of the Old Testament. Scribal tradition. The New Testament, on the other hand, was scrutinized from the ground up by the early church, the early believers, to ensure that it was inspired in the first place. And they did so based on four criteria, very quickly, authorship, agreement, authority, and acceptance. If a letter or book in the New Testament era didn't meet those four criteria, it wasn't accepted as God's word. It wasn't considered reliable. Regarding authorship, authorship, it had to be written by an apostle or written under apostolic oversight. Like, for instance, the Gospel of Mark under the Apostle Peter's oversight. They scrutinized, the early church did, they scrutinized the authorship of each and every book and they eliminated far more than they accepted. Second, they scrutinized its agreement. The agreement of New Testament books and letters, or lack thereof in most cases. The text had to agree with sound doctrine as taught by other apostles and the prophets in the Old Testament. And if it didn't agree with the sound doctrine as already once delivered, they didn't accept it. Third, they scrutinized its authority. Its authority. Authorship, agreement, authority. Does it speak with the inherent power to change lives? Does it divide to soul and spirit as if God is speaking directly to us when we are reading it? If yes, it was considered God's word. If no, it was set aside. And then last, fourth, they scrutinized its acceptance. Its acceptance. Did the earliest churches accept the writing as God's word? Did the earliest believers put their stamp of approval on it and study it and worship according to it and live by it? Was there consensus among them? If yes, 
In addition to the other criteria, it was considered to be God's word. Authorship, authority, agreement, and acceptance. Four criteria by which the text has been carefully scrutinized and found reliable. Third, the third fact you need to know is that it was meticulously copied. Meticulously copied. I know this is like going to school this morning on a really, really cold morning, uh, maybe a somewhat sleepy morning for some, but I trust that the Lord is awakening you more and more as you hear more, about, more and more truth about his truth. It was meticulously copied. In a 2014 hit piece in Newsweek magazine, one guy said this, quote, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. I first read that and I was like, okay, okay, maybe I can, I can give you that one. And then I kept going. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither, he extends it, has the Pope. Neither have I. And neither have you. And then the hair in the back of my neck stood up. Neither have you. At best, he says, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times, unquote. In other words, the Bible is deeply flawed in a deeply flawed document and can't be trusted, God's word or not, except it's not true on several fronts. First, just at face value, we don't have in our hands a translation of translations of translations, as if our Bibles were translated from the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, or the Hebrew language, the original language of the Old Testament. We don't have translations of translations of translations these days, as if it was translated from Greek and then into Latin and then into, oh, I don't know, German and, and French, and then finally into English. It's just simply not true. Good versions of the Bible, like the ESV, are translated directly from Greek and Hebrew. And that charge could have been maybe a little bit legitimate for the old King James Version, first translated in 1611. It was translated from the Latin, which was translated from the Greek. But even then, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't a bad translation. The Bibles, though, we have today, at least good ones, are translated directly from the original biblical language, which, make, which makes it a translation period. But what about the copies of copies thing? Like, what about that? Like, how do we know they were accurate? How do we know all the copies that we have from one to the next to the next to the next were, were accurate so that what we have now is accurate? Because all scholars agree we don't have the original manuscripts. So how do we know that a simple fishing story didn't turn into a miracle story over the years. You know how that works. It's because of examples like this. Up until 75 years ago, in the span of history, a drop in the bucket, up until 75 years ago, our oldest copy of the Old Testament in Hebrew was from 900 AD. All right, so get that in your mind. 900 years after Christ, was our oldest, up until 75 years ago, was our oldest copy of the Old Testament in the original language of Hebrew. While the events of the Old Testament, of course, occurred before 
450 BC. Oldest copy we had was 900 AD, but the events occurred 1,350 plus years before that. We had earlier Greek translations of the Hebrew Old Testament, but not earlier Hebrew manuscripts until 1947, when a Hebrew copy of Isaiah was discovered dating from 100 BC. 100 BC. Enabling scholars to compare two Hebrew manuscripts separated by a thousand years of hand copying. Remember that scribal tradition? Thousand years of hand copying, these two manuscripts were separated by copies of copies of copies of copies. And they found between these two manuscripts almost perfect agreement. The only differences were occasional spelling errors or the presence of a conjunction like the word and. Other than that, there were no substantive differences and certainly no differences that changed the meaning of the text. That's how we know, because of examples like that, and there are others, that's how we know the Bible is reliable despite not having the original scrolls. You say, great pastor, but what about the New Testament? What about the charge that, that there are thousands and thousands of variants between the New Testament copies, or variants as in differences, between all of the different New Testament copies that we have, like 400,000 variants, 400,000 differences between all of the copies of the New Testament that we have, like, what about those? Like, misspelled words, different words, or additional words. Like, doesn't that undermine the reliability of all the copies? And therefore, the book we hold in our hands, like, doesn't that eliminate our confidence in the text? It, it sounds scary, doesn't it? 400,000 variants, 400,000 differences between the hand-copied copies. It does not undermine our confidence in the text. In fact, just the opposite. Bear with me here. Just the opposite, because first of all, five quick reasons. First of all, that's comparing over 25,000 manuscripts and quotations of manuscripts in multiple different languages, which means, you can do the math yourself, which means there's an average of only 16 variants, 16 differences per manuscript. Do you know how many Greek words there are in the New Testament? I googled it. 138,213. 138,213 words in the Greek New Testament. And between all of these 25,000 different manuscripts or quotations of manuscripts, there's only 16 variants, differences per manuscript on average. So the variance between the copies are minuscule by comparison. Plus, plus, check this out. If 10 copies say, God so loved the world, John 3, 16, if 10 copies say, God so loved the world, and one copy over here says, God so loved the word, accidentally leaving out the letter L, that's not counted as one variant, but 11 variants. And so at the end of the day, the earliest Greek manuscripts agree with 99.5% accuracy. 
Second, the vast majority of the variants are spelling errors, easily discerned and easily corrected, like the example I just gave. Third, most of the substantive variants are clustered around a few isolated places in the text, a few isolated places in the New Testament, like, for instance, John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. We will get back to the book of John, I promise, and we'll probably get to that text, oh, I don't know, maybe a year from now. <laughs> I hope I'm kidding. If I'm not kidding, the Lord knows. We'll take it as it comes, so rich and deep as it is. But that particular text, it's possible that the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery actually happened, but it's not in the original manuscripts. And good Bibles will note it. Fourth, none of the variants affect any major doctrine or practice. None. None. And then fifth, our confidence in the text shouldn't be diminished by the large number of variants because they actually help us discern what the original manuscripts said. It's a field of study called textual criticism. And while I don't have time to give you an example, I've posted an article on our website under resources that does contain a couple of examples. It's written by Greg Gilbert, Dr. Greg Gilbert, a pastor and professor at the Southern Theological or Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And it's based on a little book that he wrote called Why Trust the Bible. I highly recommend it. Five reasons that all the textual variants in hand-copied copies of copies of copies actually reinforce our confidence in the Bible instead of undermine it. It was meticulously copied. And then last, closely related, it was faithfully preserved. It was faithfully preserved. That's the fourth fact you need to know regarding the reliability of the text. Let's just focus for a second on the New Testament and only on the Greek copies of the text. Just Greek copies of the New Testament, we have 5,856 manuscripts, almost 6,000 manuscripts. About 1,700 of them are of the Gospels. They're, they're not all of the entire New Testament. About 1,700 of them are of the Gospels. 800 are of Paul's letters. 650 are of the book of Acts and so on. Some of them preserved in whole and some of them preserved in part. Which you need to know is enormous compared to other ancient manuscripts. I mean, not even a comparison. We have only seven of Plato's writings. Seven. Ten of Caesar's. Forty-nine of Aristotle's. 120 from Josephus, a first century Roman historian. And yet, nobody has a problem replying on those copies of copies of copies. What's more, the gap between those copies of those other ancient manuscripts, other authors, Aristotle, Plato, and the like, the gap between their original writings and the oldest manuscripts we possess ranges from 1,000 years to 1,400 years. Well, the gap, catch this, between the original New Testament manuscripts and the copies we have is only 45 to 75 years. No comparison. 
put all that together from the large number of manuscripts and the high degree of agreement to the small gap in trans transmission and our Bible has been faithfully preserved. In fact, Dr. Gilbert says, quote, indeed, it's well within the realm of possibilities that we have in our museums today copies of the originals, full stop. The text is reliable. The text is reliable. That's the seventh reason overall. Number eight, you still with me? Number eight, it's writers were persecuted. Its writers were persecuted. From the prophets to the apostles, they were mistreated. We know this from the scriptures and we know this from extra biblical literature. They were mistreated, they were brutalized, they were exiled and even killed for what they wrote. The prophets for a message of warning and repentance and the apostles for preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus and did so all without denying one word. They were persecuted, sometimes unto death, without denying one word, which means we can trust what they wrote. They died to proclaim it. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, but don't people give their lives all the time for false causes? If, if that's what you're thinking, you'd be absolutely correct, for sure. People give their lives all the time for false causes. Look at suicide bombers. The world is littered with people who have died for causes they believed to be true. Believed to be true. Thought were true. But stay with me here. Nobody gives their life for something that they know to be false. Nobody. You'd never go to the stake for saying two plus two equals five. You just never die for that because you know it's false. But you might die for two plus two equals four because you know it's true. You can see it with your own eyes firsthand. Two pennies plus two pennies equals four pennies. It might not buy the same amount today as it did yesterday, but it still equals four pennies. And the same is true of the apostles. They were in a firsthand position to know whether Jesus really did rise again. They were in a firsthand position. And if it was false, if their preaching and writing was one big ruse, they would have never given their life for it. That makes no sense at all unless every single one of them were completely deluded and deranged. And that's obviously not the case as shown by the clarity and the depth of their writing. So the only logical alter alternative is that they gave their lives for something they knew to be true. Something they knew to be true. It's the eighth reason to trust the Bible as God's word. And then last, number nine, its message is compelling. Its message is compelling. Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician and scientist who in his later years wrote about religion. The guy was brilliant at the age of 16. He was and talking about all kinds of physics things and, and, and developing these mathematical theorems and all of it. 
And but later on in his life, he had an awakening and he began to write about religion. And among his many famous quotes, he said this, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive, unquote. Attractive and I would add compelling. Or to say it another way, most people both in former days and certainly in our day, most people base their decisions and beliefs on feelings instead of facts. It's true, isn't it? Most people, they base their, they base their decisions and their conclusions on what makes them feel good, what spurs them on, what stirs their heart. And while that can be overemphasized, like in our day and age where feelings are everything, it's also a necessary quality of God's word, that it compels us, that it stirs our heart, that it spurs us on, that it encourages us and enlightens us and convicts us and all the rest. After all, it's from God. It's from God, the all-powerful, all-knowing supreme being of the universe. How in the world could his written revelation to us be anything other than compelling? And if it's not compelling, it would raise serious, legitimate questions as to whether or not it indeed is God's word. Thankfully, it's so compelling that people change their lives because of it. Present party included. People find this book compelling, at least those who read it, those who see it with the eyes of their heart, those who aren't blinded by the God of this age, they, they find it so compelling that it causes them of all things to repent, to, to bend the knee and surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and stop living for themselves and start living for him. Who in the world does that because they just happen to feel good about it? And yet people have done it the world over and continue to do it the world over and our church is just a little bitty microcosm of it. People changing their mind about sin and pursuing righteousness. People who stop following the world and start following Christ. It's that compelling. It's so compelling that people actually leave everything they have to tell others about it. Forsaking homes and family and lands, Mark 10, 29 and 30. Some of them destitute and afflicted and mistreated of whom the world is not worthy, the Bible says. And yet they go. They go. They go. They go across the street. They go across the river. They go across the ocean. They go across the land. That's how compelling this book is. Some people even give their lives for preaching it for spreading the truth in our day, Nigeria, one of them right now as we speak, pastors being killed for preaching the word of God, for spreading the truth and standing for truth in a world of opposition. And there's a long history of, of people like that from, from Peter and Stephen to countless martyrs since. In fact, the Bible's message is so compelling, some people won't even 
darken the door of our church for fear of how it might change their life. It's true. While others can't stay away for fear of missing out. It's a powerful reason for trusting the Bible as God's word and a powerful reason to base your life on it. The last of nine reasons. And I hope you do. I hope you do base your life on it. I hope you read it, study it, live it, and love it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And most importantly, love the God who wrote it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because it's not only true, it's truth. God's truth. Everything we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Father, the sum of your word is truth. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh, how we thank you for it, God. Will you use it, Lord, this morning, this week, this month, this year? Will you use it, your word, to pierce our hearts? Will you use it, God, to convince our minds, to convict our souls? Will you use it, Lord, to bring us to a place of repentance if we haven't already? Would you use it, God, to convict us of sin that we need to come clean about? Oh, God, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us more and more, we pray, and give us a greater and greater desire to know it and live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.